0: As was already mentioned by way of the announcements, what a joyous opportunity and privilege is ours this evening, the marvelous wonder of merely being able to gather as the children of God to lift high and wonderfully the majestic name that is His, and to encourage and also lift up each other so that the things that we may face this week, we may be better able to not only meet those challenges, but to conquer them, to overcome them, and to live in such a way to be a wonderful example to those who in fact are about us. As you might have noticed in the bulletin as it made announcement of what the lesson title for this evening would be, it is a lesson with the entitlement of capital punishment. And so tonight, might I invite your attention with me as we look at a subject that has gained no small amount of controversy in in recent years, but nonetheless one that also is a Bible subject. And that alone means that it's a topic that you and I should familiarize ourselves with. To know a little bit about what the scriptures proclaim concerning it, And to be perhaps better able to defend the position of the scriptures if that were to arise in perspectives in which you and I might find our discussions. By way of introduction this evening, could I perhaps ask you on the very surface of the lesson, and certainly it is no grand revelation, but there are certain behaviors that we appreciate to be very kind, very worthy of imitation, behaviors that we appreciate in others that truly are noble indeed, In fact, you and I, of course, should ever strive to be individuals who set before others very wonderful examples of all that is the righteousness of God. But of course, on the other side of that coin, there are those conducts that we see in the lives of others that, to put the matter bluntly, are atrocious, heinous things that people do to others, to folks in their community, perhaps even to their own families, and in fact, the news that we sometimes are, are able to see on the nightly case, sometimes it's even much more local than we might wish, is certainly very drastically evil things are done by individuals. We certainly thus realize that the kinds of behavior span the whole range of the very good to the very bad. In fact, on that second sheet, or the second line, I should say, we've even noted that our justice system seems to appreciate the same kind of thing, that there are certain behaviors that are deemed worthy of punishment. Behaviors in some instances deemed worthy of lifetime punishment, and from time to time there's this sentence of the death penalty that someone may well receive for the case of the most heinous kinds of murders. That kind of information immediately leads us to ask, what can we say about the death penalty? Is that scriptural? There are some who affirm that it is not. There are others who say that it absolutely is. Does the Bible say, and if so, where, and in what context, and what is the context that helps us appreciate the thoroughness of that meaning? Tonight, I would ask that we study that in some detail, asking very bluntly, but also very plainly, what do the Holy Scriptures say about the death sentence, the death penalty, capital punishment, if you will? To begin that kind of lesson... I would ask that we first begin our study in the Old Testament. We first should appreciate, I suspect, that again we do not live beneath the law of the Old Testament. That law absolutely was nailed to the cross, but as we have frequently noted in our study, on occasion there are principles that one can learn grand lessons from as they were stated and occurred in the Old Testament, and we shall focus upon that kind of question. Were there principles that governed the penalties as they were stated for crimes in that day? And if so, what was the premise of those principles? Do any carry over to the New Testament? If so, which ones and why? And has God made specific statements that would allow us to thoroughly understand and to comprehend the nature of the death sentence, whether it's scriptural or whether it's not? With that introduction stated, The Old Testament, again, is where we shall look first. It is a very simple statement, and again, I suspect it is no great revelation to us. There were several crimes, several behaviors that, in fact, were punishable with the death penalty in the Old Testament. I would ask that we begin to look through that listing. As nearly as I was able to determine, there are 14 crimes in the Old Testament in which the punishment for that was death. Let's make a listing of these 14 of them, and again, somewhat brief, admittedly, but at least to make notice of what they were. Might we begin the list with murder? As you notice at the outset of that sheet, and I've listed the scriptures that you might want to copy down and resort to them at some point in this week as you might study some of these things. In texts, for instance, such as Exodus twenty thirteen. In the six of the Ten Commandments, God said four words, Thou shalt not kill. In the presentation of that very simple, but yet very dramatic and powerful proclamation, we find that the children of Israel, the Hebrew nation if you please, was directly commanded, and in fact other translations render it like this, Thou shalt do no murder. Murder was outside the bounds of what was to be within the conduct of those interested in pleasing God. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 24, verse 17, again a relatively brief verse, but the idea is again very poignant, very compelling in the sense that it again said, Thou shalt not take the life of any man by murder. They were not thus to commit the aspect of that murder. To do so was a violation of the wishes of God further we notice in exodus 21:12 as well as numbers 35:16 in all of those instances we find the absolute proclamation of heaven that murder was to be punishable by death an individual who thus took the life of another with premeditation was in fact to be put to death Now, below that, I've listed some passages that I hope help us appreciate the thoroughness and uniqueness of what that implies. For instance, we well know frequently in the Old Testament, animals could be killed. In fact, God gave the human family the capability of taking the life of an animal such that it could be used for food or for other things that that animal could provide. There clearly was something very different from taking the life of an animal and taking the life of a human being. Human beings are made in the image and in the likeness of God. They are immortal spirits, and that bestows upon them something infinitely different than any animal. Thus, note the distinction. As early as Genesis 9, verse 6, the very last text that I chose to list, God even told Noah, when the time of the flood ended and he and his family exited the ark, God on that occasion warned them to take the life of any man his life would be taken. There we find even in the patriarchal era of time, the penalty that we call capital punishment for murder. It didn't begin under the law of Moses. It went further back in time, even to the era of the patriarchy. That kind of murder was thus punishable by the very aspect of the death penalty. Secondly, notice also that the death penalty was prescribed for those who would smite, or, re, or strike their parents. That statement is found in Exodus 21:15, and so if a person against his mother or his father were to strike or smite them, he was to be put to death. A tremendous statement, isn't it, of the character of respect for one's parents, the appreciation of the authority vested in them by the God of heaven, so that if this child in rebellion or otherwise disrespectful, smote or struck that parent, the law of Moses authorized the putting of that child to death. But in the third place, notice that if one cursed or reviled or showed contempt toward his parent, that also was a crime punishable by death. That text is found in Exodus twenty-one seventeen, as well as Leviticus 20, verse 9. Might we notice again the incredible sense of authority and the character of respect that God wished the parent to have in his and her household. That child who reviled, who cursed, who showed disrespectful contempt to his parent. God authorized it beneath the law of Moses that that child could be put to death. That reminds us, doesn't it, of how strong is God's pleasure with regard to authority. And whether that be within the home, in the civil government, or in the church, authority is a greatly significant subject when it comes to the God of heaven. In the fourth place, kidnapping. If an individual stole someone from another person, be it a slave or otherwise, notice that we read in Exodus twenty-one sixteen that the one who did the kidnapping was to be put to death. Kidnapping was a serious offense. It was, in fact, a breach of the character of the livelihood of a person. It was a breach on the nature of what that person represented. In the fifth place, if a person owned an animal, for instance, an ox or some other kind of animal, and that owner had been warned in time past that that ox was willing and quite often pushed against the fence and got out, but the owner had never taken any advantage of those warnings to fix the fence and, in fact, tried to make sure that that dangerous animal did not get loose. If that owner had been sufficiently forewarned, the animal got loose and killed somebody, the owner was to be put to death. That, again, highlights a matter of responsibility, doesn't it? That we have a responsibility, if perhaps, to appreciate the very question that... Cain asking the long ago am I my brother's keeper Genesis 4 verse 9 in essence God said yes he was not to have done that which he did to his brother taking his life and here the owner of that animal who had the warning but had done nothing about it and that animal escaped and did harm and damage that way the animal was to be slaughtered the owner was to be killed That kind of situation points out in great matter how that the community of the Hebrews was to be a law-abiding citizenry, understanding of God's protection of the human character and family. Notice in the next place, the sin of sodomy. The first of our sexual sins that we shall find in the listing. A person guilty of sodomy was to be put to death reads Exodus twenty-two, nineteen, Leviticus 20, verses 15 and 16. That person who thus would stoop to the point of engaging in the sexual sin of sodomy was to be put to death. Capital punishment was to be the end of that life. We can already appreciate again the marvelous and beautiful thing that sexual character is to be when it's correct and approved and when it's right. But when it isn't, it is an affront to the very nature of God. It is a violation of His will for the human family. And it was to be punishable in the case of sodomy by death. That's the last one on that sheet. But let us continue to look at some others also that were punishable by death. Top one of the next G. The defilement of the Sabbath. We will remember that God had specified in the Ten Commandments, in fact, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Again, the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Now, suppose someone did not sufficiently remember it and honor the Sabbath day, but suppose a person defiled it. Might we notice in Exodus thirty-one fourteen and 15, as well as Exodus 35, 2, that person who violated the law of the Sabbath was to be put to death. This is an exceedingly interesting of the capital punishment crimes, isn't it? That Hebrew who realizing God's great benefit to that Hebrew family, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, who in fact brought them into that land of possession out of the woeful bond of Egypt. We notice that that person who has sufficiently little respect for God's commandment concerning the Sabbath, that person in defiling of it was to be put to death. One might ask, well, how could one defile that day? Well, in those passages I listed, we learned that it could be by doing work that day. Remember, that was the day when there was to be no work. No servile labor was to take place. Those who did so willfully violated the Sabbath, and that was to be punishable by death. In addition to the violation of the Sabbath, those who would have the audacity to practice child sacrifice to the various gods of the Middle Eastern part of the world. Later in the Old Testament, we learn that that happened far, far too much. Even once was too much. But even God's people would offer their children as sacrifices and sometimes living sacrifices to these gods of Canaan. Gods like Chemosh and Molech, as the book of Zephaniah will tell us later. In those instances, any parent who, or any person who would do any such was to be himself or herself put to death. That text is found in Leviticus 20, verse number 2. Returning to one of the sexual sins, we notice that the act of adultery. In fact, others somewhat also mention sexual sins in the text of Leviticus 20, verses 10 through 12. Those were to be punishable by capital punishment. That husband or that wife or that father or that mother who would engage in various sins like incest and other things of a sexual variety, God said they are to be put to death. Reminds us today again about the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of the formation of the sexual nature that God has in fact approved the human family to enjoy. All others are a transgression of his will and an insult to his revelation from heaven. And under the law of Moses, those who were guilty thereof were to be put to death. Even the Hebrews knew the character of that commandment. We remember in John chapter 8, the Pharisees brought a woman to Jesus and said, We have taken her in adultery, what are we to do with her? We well remember also that the Jews had violated three of the premises of the Old Testament. Both the man and the woman were to be brought. They didn't bring the man. We also remember that those who had seen it were to cast the first stone. They didn't, in fact, have those eyewitnesses present either. It is to be noted that they well knew, though, the commandment. In light of those sexual sins, the very next verse, Leviticus 20.13, points us to homosexuality. Those guilty of homosexuality were to be put to death. That sin was not to be tolerated in in Israel. It was not to be tolerated in any sense of formulating a society respectful of the very will and power of God's laws. Isn't it amazing today when we consider our nation and these centuries later the degree of homosexuality and adultery and various other sexual sins like sodomy that not only go uncondemned, There are those in our land who endorse them and support them and encourage them. God said they were to be put to death in that day and time. I'm not for a moment suggesting that we under the Christian era should do the same, but it does point out how serious these sins are. God didn't turn a blind eye to them then, and He didn't allow His people to do that either. Following that, we notice that those that were wizards those who played around in areas such as necromancy and things such as witches and wizards and things like that, God said, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. All such in that variety were to be put to death. And again, isn't it interesting that today we endorse soothsayers and fortune tellers and those that you can pick up a phone. I see the commercials on TV and call and have somebody supposedly tell your fortune. All of that is simply that which ought not to be. Nobody knows the future. It's that simple. God has not vouchsafed to any human the character of appreciating that which lies in the future. Furthermore, we can notice those who blasphemed God, Leviticus 24:16, were to be put to death. That person who would speak blasphemy and injuriously toward God was not to be allowed to live. That also reminds us of the strength and power of His name, doesn't it? The third of the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. We notice here that those who would speak against God blasphemously, those who again injuriously would speak against Him, were to be put to death. In the next place, we notice that God had various matters related to authority in which he gave some the privilege of working in various ways in service to him. Such as there were those who were authorized to carry the Ark of the Covenant. There were those authorized to touch various portions of the tabernacle. Isn't it interesting that when an unauthorized person touched that Ark, we read in texts like Exodus 19.12... In texts such as numbers 151, numbers three verse 10 as well as verse 38, and numbers 18:7, all such individuals were to be put to death. Doesn't that help us again see authority is important, and God did not have much respect for those who did not respect his authority. We might remember that in terms of that Ark of the Covenant, for example, it was very much the case that God gave the right of the family of Kohath to be those who bore the Ark of the Covenant. That was one family of the tribe of Levi. Only they were allowed to touch it. Much later in the Old Testament history, in 1 Chronicles 13, what happened to Uzzah when he reached forth his hand and touched the Ark of the Covenant? We will remember. He was struck dead on the spot. Reminding us again of the power of God's commandment. Uzzah had not been authorized to touch that ark, only the family of Kohath. It is to be noted then that these perhaps lead us to one more. Consider a person who claimed to be a prophet. If that prophet encouraged individuals to follow false gods, that is, encouraged or in fact made statements that led to that conclusion. God said in Deuteronomy 13 beginning in verse 1, that prophet was to be put to death. Here was a person supposedly of God, an individual who at least claimed to be a religious person. God said, put that man to death if he encourages others to be worshippers or followers of false gods. I think we can see in these 14 instances that capital punishment was a rather frequent occurrence under the law of Moses. Probably one didn't have to be Convinced that capital punishment took place for all of these crimes, it was commanded by God that it was to to occur. That leads me to make some very brief remarks. In light of these 14 examples that we have seen, first, God absolutely commanded capital punishment in various instances. These that we have studied were not the ideas of Moses or Joshua or Caleb or various other worthies of the Old Testament, these were God's commandments. Furthermore, in the second place, we notice that God expected, yea, even demanded His people to carry out these sentences. And perhaps there's an interesting example in Numbers 15, beginning in verse 32, that highlights that point. On that occasion, the children of Israel espied a man. He was a Hebrew, one of their own, who was seen gathering sticks on the Sabbath. That individual was in fact put up in ward, something like a prison or a jail cell, because they were wanting to know what God would tell them to do with him. And so Moses besought the Lord as to what they should do with this person who had been gathering sticks on the Sabbath, and here's what God said. Take him outside the camp and stone him. Put that man to death, for he violated the Sabbath. That, of course, is in harmony with that earlier statement we had made, that those who transgressed or violated the Sabbath were to be put to death. You see, God meant what he said concerning the carrying out of those sentences, didn't he? Furthermore, we might also notice then the third and final statement on that slide. Capital punishment was hence entirely scriptural beneath not only the law of Moses, but also beneath the patriarchal dispensation. Having looked at those things at the first portion or segment of our lesson tonight, our question no doubt now revolves around the matter of the New Covenant, the New Testament. Do the 27 books from Matthew to Revelation say anything about the scripturalness of capital punishment today? If so, what are the specifics of those statements? It is with that in mind, I would ask you to turn with me now to to a discussion beneath the era of the New Testament. As we mentioned earlier in our lesson tonight, We know that that old law of Moses was nailed to the cross. Colossians 2 verse 14. And we know that in Galatians 3 verses 24 and 25. That when the appreciative of Paul's statement took this form. Namely that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But when the faith has come we are no longer under the schoolmaster. The law of Moses was the schoolmaster. And hence when the faith has come the the gospel we no longer serve beneath the letter of that law. And thus, today, we could not thus claim that if a person is, say, a violator of the Sabbath, Saturday, that that person ought to be put to death. That law was not brought forward into the New Testament, was it? In fact, the Sabbath, Saturday, is no longer a special day in any sense of the word, is it? But it is to be noted that the New Testament is not silent on the matter of capital punishment. A few other remarks on that sheet. It also is to be noted that we do not find in the New Testament that lengthy and detailed and specific list of crimes like we have seen in the Old Testament, such as sodomy and witchcraft and the various other things that we noted just a moment ago. But are there principles and are there verses and are there statements that do address this topic? And that answer is yes. In the 13th chapter of the Roman letter, perhaps the clearest and plainest of all the New Testament texts that touch the subject, and so it is to that set of verses that I would invite your attention, as we read the first four verses of that chapter, the very last verse, the fourth one will be the one that was read in our hearing earlier tonight. In that set of verses we read, "'Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God.' Be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. That again was the reading of Romans 13, verses 1 through 4. And might I invite us to revisit and make some comments about those four verses, highlighting some of the statements that Paul made and also drawing some conclusions based on those statements. First of all, Notice that he says in verse 1, "...the higher powers are ordained of God." Who are these higher powers to which Paul refers? That may well appear to be a rather vague expression. In the context of a family, the parents are higher powers than the children. In the context of the church, the elders and, of course, Christ himself are the higher powers. In the nature of the civil government, we know that there are higher powers. Which one is Paul referring to? Thankfully, he explains that very clearly, doesn't he? Notice in verse number 3, he expounds upon and elaborates. Those higher powers there are called rulers. There are no other places in which that refers to anyone other than the civil rulers, the civil government, if you will. Paul has in mind civil magistrates, officials and individuals who labor and work in the civil government. And notice he says, these higher powers are ordained of God. Meaning that it is God who has given them the position of authority in which they dwell. It is God who allows authority to exist in a civil government arrangement to maintain peaceableness and to maintain a sense of orderliness without, in fact, with lack of anarchy and with, and with lack of chaos. It very much is interesting to recall in first Timothy chapter one or chapter two verses one and two, that there Paul in studying to Timothy said that we should be ever earnest to pray for kings and for all that are in authority. Why, Paul? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. It certainly is true that we aren't always those who appreciate everything that the civil rulers do. For their decisions on occasion that they make that are in transgression of, or at least opposed to, some of the doctrines of the Scriptures. But in a generic way, it is still the case that their position of authority has been that which is approved by heaven. Notice that these powers, Paul says, are ordained of God. But that isn't all that he says. Notice that obedience to the government, which is the second statement I've listed, is itself demanded. Wasn't it Peter who affirmed we ought to obey God rather than men? To quote Acts five twenty nine. And wasn't it the interesting instance in Titus three verse one that Paul there commanded Titus, You command them to obey magistrates. Put them in mind to have an attitude of disposition to appreciate the lawfulness of the civil government in terms of the authority vested in it. Those conclusions or those statements lead us to notice what Paul affirmed in verse 2 of our text. Now that we know who these powers are, note the forcefulness affirmed in verse 2. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, what power, Paul? That power vested in those civil authorities. Whoever resisteth that power resisteth the very ordinance of God. And in so doing, they shall receive what? Damnation. Such a thing is not... A matter that the God of heaven finds pleasing. it is not something that you and I should understand. He desires that we be seditionists, and those who are those that are behind rebellions against various types of civil government. Rather, he notes in verse three, Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? What power? that same power that's been vested in those officials, who are the executive branch of government can carry out those laws and there are officers at their disposal to permit them to do so. It is in the case that we can notice, interestingly, the statement that we finally reach in verse number 4. Again, the text says, For he, who's the he, those same powers that are ordained of God, He says, He is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, so what if an individual, thus, despite the laws of the land, engages in activities that are evil, things that the civil law has affirmed are bad, are wrong, are punishable? Paul says, If thou do that which is evil, be afraid. Why should we fear? Why should we be afraid? Could it be the case that those civil authorities have power vested in them by God to carry out punishment upon those who nonetheless engage in evil? Let us see. For he, who's the he? Those same powers, those civil authorities and rulers. He, Paul says, beareth not the sword in vain. There we have a straightforward reference. He, those civil authorities, do not bear the sword in vain. A sword is not used for tickling someone. A sword is employed to kill. It is employed to carry out sentences. The sword is not carried in vain by these civil authorities. That sword is in fact wielded by them with the full approval of heaven to punish those who break that law, those laws that are deemed worthy of the matter of capital punishment. In Romans 13, 4, notice how that text ends. It says, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. To execute wrath. To carry out a sentence of revenge, a sentence of punishment deemed worthy toward those who've committed sufficient crimes that fall under that category of this matter of capital punishment. In that text, we find Paul making statements that the civil authorities are the powers ordained of God to maintain civil order in the society. And those who violate that, who do evil, should be afraid. For those civil rulers do not carry the sword in vain. God approves capital punishment. He did beneath the Old Testament and he still does today. Now, as we mentioned, he hasn't specifically stated those crimes under the new regime like he did in the old. He didn't save witches and those guilty of adultery and those guilty of homosexuality. The actual crimes are left for government to determine, for a society of its own accord to determine. But once that's determined, with the anarchy that can result from the lack of the carrying out of these executions, we notice God gives his approval to the carrying out of capital punishment. It might be fair to say that in larger letters, I have asked us to notice that the Bible, even to this day, continues to authorize and to specify the will of God with respect to the matter of capital punishment. There are times that you and I perhaps become a bit frustrated when we become aware by way of the news that individuals have committed heinous, very much heinous crimes against society and yet they are given the death penalty, but by way of appeals, they live for decades thereafter. I suspect our society would be far better if we were able to carry those out more speedily because at the very least we can say that God has authorized, even in the Christian era, the carrying out of capital punishment. These civil authorities do not bear the sword in vain. When we remember that the phrase in vain means emptily, Notice, they have a sword and Paul says they don't bear it in vain. That means they can use it. They can employ it to the carrying out of the punishment of that evil that we have seen generically mentioned in these verses before us. The fairness of those texts lead us, I believe, to a conclusion for our lesson this evening. Could we notice that in the Old Testament era, under the patriarchal system, under the Mosaic economy, God authorized capital punishment for various and sundry crimes, including murder, various sexual sins, other kinds of behavior, and in general, we notice for even great disrespect toward parents or toward the nature of the tabernacle or the furnishings that were in it. Now, under the New Testament era, we notice that God also has authorized agents that he has given permission to carry out capital punishment. Those powers ordained in Romans 13, 1 those civil authorities of which we read in this text as well as 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10. With those kinds of ideas mentioned and set before us tonight, I would hope that we have a renewed zeal for God's respect for authority. He wishes society to be orderly, the church to respect the authority that God has placed within it, and authority in the family God has placed and also stated. As we respect His authority might we notice that authority leads us to notice the gospel plan of salvation. No person has any right to come up with his or her own plan of salvation. The only one that God respects is the one He has approved. That plan of salvation involves the nature of our understanding that we are sinners. We believe Jesus to be the Son of God. We repent of those sins in our life, understanding that they are what have drawn a chasm between us and Him. We then, with haste, with a great zeal and earnest in our heart, are happy to confess his name as the Son of God and then to be baptized for the remission of sins. This very night, if we could be of assistance in the accomplishment of that, what a lovely day it would be for the Pippin family and, of course, for you personally as you begin your march toward eternity in heaven. But if you have begun that march, but you have strayed away from the path of righteousness... Maybe you have forgotten God's emphasis upon authority. Come back to that first love. If we could be of assistance in praying in a public way for forgiveness of sins that are known to be public, we would be happy to pray on that occasion and for for your forgiveness. If we could pray for your strength, we'd also be honored to engage in that as well. If either of these things would be the need of your life and heart tonight, Brother Randall has chosen a hymn of encouragement, and would you not come while together we stand and sing that hymn?